Coming to you from ACOG's annual scientific meeting in San Francisco, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz for ReachMD, and I'm joined by Dr. Maureen Wheelihan. She's president of the Center for Sexual Health and Education in West Palm Beach, Florida, and I'm happy to say a celebrity host of ReachMD. <laughs> Good Dr. Wheelihan, great to have you with us. How are you today? So we all know, uh, anybody who's familiar with, with your shows knows that you are an expert, and that's an understatement in a large degree of sexual health and medicine. You're here at ACOG to discuss a number of elements in sexual health from low desire to painful intercourse to top tips that OBGYNs should take with them into their practice for sexual health. Where do I even start with you? What exactly <laughs> are you speaking about in particular, and what do you want to impart to our audience? So today should be really exciting because I'm doing a new teaching series called Flipped Classroom, which you guys on ReachMD have actually talked about before. And so it's new to me, and it's going to be exciting, but the, the attendees of my course will have seen three videos, three 10-minute videos of me, one on desire, painful sex, and office tips. And also receive journal articles and, and information. And then they come to class, and then we talk about cases. So today, I'm going to be putting up various cases of patients from as young as age 22 to as old as age 81 in this particular group of patients. And I discuss the cases. And, of course, I picked ones that had multiple issues so that it's not just one thing we're going to solve. We're going to look at all the moving parts within the sexual health conversation so that each time we're reviewing a case, I bring them back to the important thing that we just talked about. So, you know, review is so important with physicians. But nobody seems to want to talk about sex, although it's becoming more apparent here. Yesterday there was a talk on transgender medicine. Today I'm talking on sexual dysfunction. Dr. Critchman is tomorrow on sex in the elderly. So I think everyone is starting to understand. We must understand how to have a conversation with our patients about sex. Just simply saying, you're allowed to ask me a question. I may not know the answer, but I'm going to help you. So do you think what's happening or what the trend that you're noticing at ACOG, is that uniform? Are you seeing this as a sign of the times now across the country? I sure hope so. We're starting to see uh, there's something called CREOG. CREOG is resident education uh, requirements. And CREOG came out two years ago with a list of things that the residents had to complete in sexual medicine. It was fantastic. It included same-sex sexual problems. It covered transgender medicine. It covered sex in the elderly. It covered everything. It was really wonderful. And I was getting ready to talk to the, the residents at University of Florida. And I looked at this and I said, I'm going to hit all those topics in this hour. Uh, the residents' heads were spinning by the time I finished. But I think... <laughs> As the baby boomers are aging, everyone wants to stay young and healthy. And part of staying healthy is functioning sexually throughout your lifetime. And don't assume that you know who's having sex because I have patients as old as 91 years old that are having penetrative intercourse. Right. You touch upon a great point there, which is that there is an enormously prevalent mythology that seems to still pervade the medical system with regards to sex. Tell me a little bit more about some of the, the mythos that goes into sexual health and medicine. So one of my favorite things is I, I'm always a, a, the clinical site for nurse practitioner students and residents. So And they're in their 20s, and they don't have sexual problems yet for the most part, uh, and they certainly don't think that old ladies that look like their grandmother are having sex. So I always like to pick the patient who would look least likely to be having sex 
and open up the dialogue and really drag them into the conversation. So one day, an 82-year-old lady was, came down. She was using a walker. She had these giant orthopedic shoes on. She was a little bit hunched over from her osteoporosis, and she was walking slowly to the bathroom. And I said to the nurse practitioner, that's our next patient, so we can talk a little bit more. She also uh, was growing a mustache because uh, old ladies sometimes grow hair. So she sits down on the exam table, and we start to move through, and I asked her, uh, how are things? She said she had a new boyfriend and she needed to talk to me about her vagina to make sure it was in good shape. And the, the, the nursing uh, nurse practitioner student sort of looked and I, you know, just ignored her. And she said she had this new boyfriend and she wanted to make sure it was working down there. And I said, well, do we know that he can get an erection? And she said, I think so. I said, have you seen it? She said, no, but he was dancing with me and I could feel it through his clothing. <laughs> And I said, oh, that's a very good sign. So let's take a look down there. So we did the exam and, you know, told her we'd fix her vaginal dryness. So as we're getting to, ready to exit the room, she said, I need to ask you one more thing. And I said, what? She says, about laser hair removal. And so, of course, I'm quickly thinking it must be for that black mustache that she has. But I, of course, did not say that. I said, what would you like lasered? And she said, my bikini. And I said, Oh, well, the good news is, old ladies, the hair falls out, and it's usually gray, so laser doesn't get that. She said, no, it's black hair. Now, I had just examined this lady, and it did not register to me. So the nurse practitioner and I go back down there and look, and she had a full field of black pubic hair, and she had tried to manage it for her date. She wanted that area managed, so she was going to have laser hair removal because it was her safest approach. And I almost died because I was thinking uh, it was going to be her mustache, which she never asked about, by the way. And, you know, you just never know. Who would think an 82-year-old lady is interested in having laser hair removal before her sexual encounter with her new lover? Right. But what you illuminate there is the idea that many people in practice will never even broach the question because they will look at a number of those physical features right up front and say, well, of course, this person does not care about his or her right. sexual health. Right. This person is furthest from their mind. Right. But you're saying, in fact, you see all the time, that is not the case. Correct. It is, and the enthusiasm, when I engage them in the conversation and give them a tip, the enthusiasm that brightens them up, they, they walk away with a giggle and a little pep in their step, and it... It makes me feel good. That's what gives me a chuckle each day. But I have to assume that you are the exception to the rule in most cases when it comes to bringing up sexual histories, which seems like it's not done nearly enough, um, if ever, in some practices. What do you think about that? So there have actually been studies, and uh, I used some of those in my talk today. Uh, one study was in, US, in the U.S. and said, how many of you regularly ask your patients about sex? It was a study on OBGYNs. Now, 48% said they regularly, more than 50% of the time, engage their patient in a sex discussion. Uh, I would bet you that the majority of them remembered they should and checked it off because they wanted to be right. Um, or they saw the mustache and said, yeah. I'm not even going to go there because, right. of course, it won't be an issue. It won't be her, right. And, but yet a similar study was done in Europe, and 14% of the OBGYN said they really routinely engage their patients in a sex discussion. But... Who better to have the conversation than the person who's in control of the pelvis? It is bladder function. It is clitoral function. It is anal function. It's vaginal function. It's dryness. It's all of those things. We're the one looking at that. So it should be the OBGYN. The problem is that just like our patients, 
the docs are just as inhibited as their patients. Right. And that's where the problem begins. It's how much of a conversation can you have and be comfortable? I'll tell you, I, I stuck on the 14% in Europe because normally I like to think of Europe, and I think most people would just as a stereotype, to be more sexually liberated at cultures compared to the U.S. Right. And yet, I mean, do you think that there's just a, a massive selection bias or perhaps um, even a, a bit of delusion going on among American medical professionals? I think the American medical professionals that were taking part of the study realized they should be doing it and that it was the sign of a good doctor to be doing it. So they answered as they should and not necessarily as they are. I see. But that's how the data is done. That is how it's done. And as we move over to, um, I mean, you gave me an amazing case study here with this um, 81-year-old. Now let's go to the younger patient. You talked about having cases uh, from 22 years and up. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the case of the 22-year-old. So the 22-year-old came to me initially uh, for PMS, heavy periods, and so forth. So we got her periods under control, and I put her on some mood meds. And she was good. Her sex got better. On return, she said, yep, sex is improving. So as I evaluated that, okay, it was probably the mood that was bad. And now I fixed her mood. So it's not always the mood meds. Sometimes it's the mood. And it's very hard to discern which it is. However, she then got pregnant. And now she came back to me after having a baby eight months ago. And now she's back to low desire. And her fiancé is furious. And so that's actually one of the cases that I'm presenting today. And when you look at that patient, you say, okay, what is it? It's clearly sleep deprivation. But one of the tips for OBGYNs is to find out how much sex does she have? Where do we need to get to? So I said to her, and I ask everyone the same thing. When you were having good sex, how often were you doing it? And she said, twice a day. Twice a day. And I said, so now that he's frustrated that you're not having enough sex, how much sex are you having? And she said, only about twice a week. So twice a week is average for the average consumer. So they're thinking twice a week, heck, that would be awesome in my household. But the fact is that their normal is twice a day. And now she's only doing it twice a week, probably because she's sleep deprived. And there's something that happens to the brain of a woman when she gets pregnant. It changes over from that sexy, naughty girl to motherhood and protecting your young and focus on the young. And the second component is the guy starts whining. You haven't done it in this many days and why aren't you having sex with me and you know, whining and carrying on. So what does she do? She starts scolding him like a child. So she starts teaching him he tra- treating him like a child, and who wants to have sex with their child? So the man starts whining and complaining and gets into this childlike behavior when really he needs to come in like a man and say, listen, we need. I'm going to get you some rest, and I'm going to have somebody take care of the baby, and we need intimacy at least, whatever, three times a week. But normally, if you would have just said, how often are you having sex? And she said twice a week, you'd be going, okay, let's move on to the next problem. Because in our world, that's average and that's okay, but not in her world. But not in her world. And so you have to look at all the factors. It could be her mood disorder. It could be the birth control pills that she's on. It could be the fact that she's sleep deprived. It could be that her brain has changed and she doesn't feel sexy. Maybe she's still nursing. Uh, She was not. But that's another factor. What about the discrepancy between her world and his world? No kidding. And so part of it is when he becomes annoyed, 
she feels guilty. The more guilty she feels, the more avoidance that she has for even any touch because the minute he touches her, she freezes up because she's convinced at this point that if she allows any kind of touch that she wants, that she's gonna have to have sex. And so it really separates all intimate touch and soothing touch. So now she's a ball of nerves all the time, which isn't really good. So part of sex therapy, if you will, or just practical discussion is just some general rules. Here's what you need. You need to, one of my favorite things for busy moms is a blindfold, (laughs) a sleep mask, not to put her to sleep, I hope, but to take her mind away from all of the surroundings and the things that remind her that she has a baby or the baby monitor on the thing. And, and it also heightens the sense of touch because now she can't see. And it makes his touch, if he moves methodically around her body, a little bit more exciting. And it takes her mind and lets her unwind. So little tips to unwind that busy brain of the new mom. That's excellent. And you know, forgive me if I'm completely wrong here because I'm certainly no, no expert, but I understood that there were some studies that indicated that male libido in the first year after, after um, delivery Uh, goes down precipitously. But it sounds like in your experience, that's not always the case. You're getting a very different story. Well, you actually, that is great data that you're quoting there. And so there there are studies on testosterone level. And that in the first year after birth, that the testosterone level goes down in men. And the premise is that it's a natural biologic uh, event to make men stop seeking sex. Well, I guess if the guy went from twice a day down to twice a week, that's a lower libido for him. But uh, there's also uh, a part of that study said the more children a man is around, the lower his testosterone level. I think just the opposite. I think the man who's attracted to taking care of a bunch of children already has a low testosterone and a slightly higher estrogen level. And that means he's just attracted to that kind of behavior. So selection bias. Yeah. So I think even in this case, this guy does have lower desire. Thank goodness he doesn't want it twice a day. But yes, that data does exist that says the testosterone is lower. Fascinating. Cool. (laughs) That's (laughs) mind-blowing. So tell me then, um, as we kind of wrap up this interview, I got another sort of population in mind and that's sort of the midlife group and i know that you must have a case in there oh yeah regarding that so there's this is probably most docs are going to be most interested because this is really who comes in so it's that perimenopausal woman and early menopause so i can speak with lots of knowledge on this as a 53 year old woman but that transition into menopause where those hormones are fluctuating darn women can really be grouchy and mean vicious They know it. They come to me to try and get that under control. But along with that, they're fatigued. They've been married 20 years, so their guy is a pain in the butt. They really don't like him that much anymore. (laughs) Their kids are really taking a toll on, you know, funds and managing. So there's a lot going on. They're at the peak of their career. I still like to, A, acknowledge you're not going nuts. You're going to survive this. You need to set apart time. Interestingly, when you interview these women... 90% of them can have orgasm on a regular basis. So it's not that they don't enjoy it. They just can't imagine where it fits in. And the whole drama of getting ready for sex seems like such a chore. Once they get into menopause, assuming they're not bothered by dryness or something else, while their hormones are low, they actually are level in mood and much more willing to have sex. And by 65, 
women are hungry again for sex. Too bad we've ignored our men for the last 15 years because now they can't get an erection when we're ready again. Now, do you find that this is independent or entirely dependent on whether kids are in the picture for these couples? Oh, I think kids suck the life out of parents. And I'm going to give some practical tips today in my talk about how do you manage these, the presence of these children around during your waking hours when in many cases you ask women, when is the best time for you to have sex? They say 11 a.m. and 4 p.m., like before dinner. Once they've eaten, they feel bloated and... Then once bedtime comes, they're exhausted. And so you have to figure out how to sneak into the bedroom for a quickie and not draw so much attention to the bedroom door that you now have closed. So desensitizing your children to the fact that you're having a private moment in the bedroom and then mastering the quickie. But married people know how to do that. (laughs) But for the perimenopausal woman who does not have children in the picture, is this something that just does not come across your office very often where you don't see this this issue with sexuality as much? Well, it's interesting because the perimenopausal woman without children is often a really driven businesswoman. So she has the whole other set of problems, and that is she's at the peak of her career and she's doing business meetings and competing with men all day and running here and traveling here. And the moodiness and the hormone fluctuations are still the same. You're just not taking it out on your kids. You're taking it out on your coworkers or the, the board that you chair. Or your partner, perhaps. Or your partner, yeah. Oh, often the partner. So the dynamics are different and the homework is different, but the problem still exists. Thank goodness there's management for all of this. So there's hope for everyone. <laughs> and I could not think of a better parting comment. There is hope for everyone. <laughs> I've been talking with Dr. Maureen Wheelahan. She is president of the Center for Sexual Health and Education in West Palm Beach, Florida. Dr. Wheelahan, it's been such a pleasure having you here today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> if you missed this or any other episode on ReachMD, go to ReachMD.com. And thanks again for listening.